chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 will be starting in verse 10. As you're turning, let me welcome those who might be watching our live stream uh, for the Sunday morning sermon. Uh, We miss you, we know some of you, and some we haven't met yet, so please join us as you're able here at Clifton Park Community Church. From God's Word, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, this well-known account of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. It's one of the greatest miracles of the Bible. On their return, the apostles told him, Jesus, all that they had done. And when he took them, and he took them, and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves with the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey. Amen. What's on the menu? It's an odd uh, opening line for a sermon, but I entitled the sermon Faith's Menu. Faith sees a menu that the world doesn't see. That's part of the imagery I'm going for here, but the the concept of what's on a menu, you sit in a restaurant and you look and see what you can order, um, that sort of thing. I I remember as a much younger man sitting in a restaurant for the first time and seeing the world's greatest sandwich listed. I hadn't seen it listed for a long time. Uh, The Monte Cristo sandwich, I, I, I won't describe it, that would take too long and my mouth would start watering. I saw it, I said, oh, now I know what I'm going to get. That's a rare find. I'm going to order that. And in some places, the regulars know that they can order something that's not on the menu, right? They're, they're in good with the cook or the waitstaff. Hey, can I still get that old dish you used to make? Sure, we'll make it for you. What we see here in this event is the disciples put in a position where they should have exercised by faith a claim on God the Father or on the Son, Jesus Christ, in their crisis. They should have sought to do more, but they didn't. We'll talk about that, but we also see in this miracle the patience and compassion and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Several things are happening all in one great episode, and we'll break it down. But hopefully we will learn 
just not just academically, but for our own faith and our own practice. So that when we're all of a sudden in a situation that overwhelms our resources, that doesn't match our experience of anything else, when we are in those circumstances, we will not overlook Jesus or the power and access available to us through prayer from God on high. So let's learn what the disciples had to learn. Let's see what God's word says. The first heading here has to do with the setup of the scene. I call it an interrupted retreat. You see, the disciples had been out on a mission. If you remember the very beginning of chapter 9, Jesus had gathered the 12 together and he gave them power and authority. He commissioned them and then he sent them out on, a, on an activity to go and proclaim the kingdom. But don't take anything with you. Just go by faith. And we made the comment that that was to stretch them and to see God's provision perhaps in new and unexpected ways. Hint, hint. Now that's done, and our passage today in verse 10 begins with their return, and they're telling Jesus all they had done. What excitement, what testimonies. They recounted people that were healed or demons that were cast out, and the interest in the kingdom and in the Messiah, how it was spreading like wildfire. Even King Herod had heard something was going on. And Jesus wisely says, Okay, let's take a break. Do you see that? This is at Jesus leading. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town near Bethsaida. Uh, Not necessarily downtown, but in the outskirts of this fishing village. Jesus took them for rest and reflection. That was his aim. And there's certainly much here to commend a rhythm of work and rest. Isn't that how God has designed creation itself with its seven-day cycle as we mark it in our modern week? And one day in seven being a day of rest and worship. Well, this retreat is interrupted. And we see also the crowds that interrupt it. No sooner had they settled there, but the crowds learned it and they followed him. What crowds? Where did they come from? Uh, Herod was perplexed in the previous passage, and the disciples had been out on a mission. Ah, I know where the crowds came from. The mission of the apostles had been very successful. How successful? Thousands of people responded to their preaching to come and find Jesus. Wow. Wow. They'd heard about this kingdom. They'd heard about the teachings of Jesus. And as the commissioned and authorized and empowered apostles did great works in villages where they had scattered, people said, we want to learn more. And the crowds are seeking Jesus. It's often the case, as pastors write about uh, the uh, impact of revival upon a local church ministry, they said, uh, it, it's, it's hard when revival breaks out because there's so much more work to be done, but there's joy in that work. The crowds have come. They come by the thousands. There are traffic jams, as it were. The infrastructure is greatly taxed. 
And as everyone gathers, it overwhelms perhaps the local supplies. But with the crowds, we also see the compassion of Jesus. Even in the same phrase, we're told that the crowds came and followed him. And he, Jesus, welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Jesus continues the mission. He kept the mission focus. And perhaps modeling for those disciples who were weary, saying something perhaps, okay, you guys sit and watch what I will handle this and would preach. We don't know the details, but Jesus was teaching, welcoming, and showing compassion. These were those who were seeking. Jesus always welcomes those who seek him. He has something to say to those who seek him. He shows his compassion to those who have particular needs. Jesus is not just all talk. He acts in the healing. In other contexts, throughout the Gospels, you cannot help but notice the compassion of Jesus. Do you have your favorite example? Perhaps one of mine is he finishes the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and the very next chapter begins with Jesus bumping into some lepers And he touches them. He's not hung up on the the peculiarities of of the the Pharisees and how to treat people that are unclean. He embraces, he shows compassion to those he is about to heal. He took time for an outcast woman by a well in Samaria. Whether the many or the one, Jesus has compassion. I don't think anyone can argue that. And he still does. Young or old, you can find compassion if you come to Jesus. But this interrupted retreat doesn't just end with Jesus picking up the ministry and doing the ministry. Uh, There's a question because there's a bit of a crisis developing as the day runs on. You can see how it develops. Verse 12. Now the day was beginning to wear away, meaning you could see the sun getting lower and there weren't street lights. So you had to go find a place to eat and a place to stay. Those kinds of practical issues. So the 12, meaning the commissioned authoritative apostles, there were many disciples with Jesus, but the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. They were outside of town where this large crowded galley, probably a large valley. And Jesus responds to the crisis in that desolate place. What does he say to his apostles? How short was their rest? He says, you give them some dinner. Uh, Excuse me? I'm sure some of these guys could cook. But what? I enjoy the the southern scholar Dale Ralph Davis in his commentaries. He just says what a lot of people are thinking. And he put it in print. He said, this was ludicrous to think that these disciples who had followed Jesus and didn't have a wagon load of food, how, how are they going to feed him? What's on the menu? We've got nada. Why does Jesus say this? You give them something to eat. 
Okay. They think. Uh, we know from the other Gospels, this is also recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John. It's in all four Gospels. One of the other Gospels said that a, a young boy came forward and offered his uh, loaves of bread and his fish. So they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. And 5,000 people, the whole valley, as far as you could see, people that had gathered looking for Jesus. How are we ever going to feed them? We could go and buy food. I don't know if the disciples were frustrated and being a little sarcastic at that point. It's not beyond mere men. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. No. They had come to the end of their resources. They were saying somewhat out loud, there's nothing we can do. The disciples, empowered and authorized by Jesus, the twelve, the apostles, were saying to the Son of God, we don't know what to do. You can see how the way the story is recounted to us in Holy Scripture, that Jesus was bringing them to their own crisis. He was challenging them. David Gooding remarks that Jesus' question ought to have startled them into thinking that there might be more to the kingdom of God and the powers of Jesus than they had yet realized. They had seen healings of individuals. A fever departs, a broken bone is reset. We don't know the the nature of all these miracles. They'd seen demons turned away at the name of Jesus. This one by one by one by one. But this is a whole lot of people. It should have provoked their thoughts. As another commentator says, they were clearly thinking along natural lines and not using their faith in Jesus to solve the crisis. It's kind of obvious to us. We, we've heard this story so often. This is, this is the world's most famous picnic, as someone has said. A lot of people know the story, so we don't even see the tension here. Again, David Gooding says the apostles had never seen a miracle on this scale before. They had witnessed the healing of individuals. But to feed this tremendous mass of people, uh, marking some 5,000 males, let alone the women and children that would be present, it was altogether a different proposition. They hadn't seen something on this scale. I, I know you can help with this illness, but we don't know about feeding a multitude. Jesus, we know that you can serve us by washing our feet, but... What service will your death on the cross accomplish? They were thinking in very small terms. And we can't blame them because that's the way we often think. A crisis comes and we look at our resources. I know who I can call. Or the crisis or situation is is bigger than our experience or resources. And we say, I don't know what to do. And eventually, uh, for us Christians, we might get around to praying. What should be our first recourse is often our last. We too need to relearn the sufficiency of Jesus and his present help. So let's look at this amazing miracle that Jesus does just as the disciples were giving up. 
We, we can't feed them. We only have a, a, a snack, and we don't have money to buy food. There are 5,000 people. Jesus said to his disciples in verse 14, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each, and they did so, and had them all sit down. What's with that? What's that preparation comment there? You know, when the story is only 10 verses long and they take a verse just to tell us about getting people to sit, what's going on? Well, even the reader of the story should understand that the stage was being set to clearly highlight and display in orderly fashion one of the greatest miracles to ever happen on planet Earth. As I said, this is one of two miracles that are recorded in all four of the Christian Gospels. I hope you know what the other one is. You can ask me after the service. But this miracle is of such great importance because of the great power it will show, the great scope of this miracle beyond anyone's imagination. Elijah and Elisha didn't see something like this happen. Never upon the earth until Jesus produced meals for thousands of people in a miraculous fashion. He's preparing them. He's showing that he's in control, organizing them so that they would be calm and and that they'd be patient. There wouldn't be disorder, but they would know that Jesus is about to do something. It calls attention to his shepherding. And how does the miracle take place? Well, it's through praying and passing out food. We're not told specific details of how it happened. Verse 16, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them, and then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. This is before sliced bread. So you take and you break. You break off a chunk. Here's something for you. Here's a chunk for you. And the fish. Here's a fish for you. Here's a fish for you. They're probably the small little snack size fish. But the first thing Jesus does is pray. He does it very demonstrably before everyone who had been silenced and organized. Sitting down, they can all see Jesus stands there. They know he's praying as he lifts up his eyes towards heaven, the standard position of Jewish prayer, and he speaks. Perhaps even the common Hebrew table blessing. My Hebrew's a little rusty, but it might have sounded like this. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, ha'motzi lachem min ha'aretz. Blessed art thou, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. The prayer that Jewish children would have heard in their home as they broke their bread. Jesus now prays as he's about to feed thousands of people through his own hands. He prays. The source of his power is from God the Father. And this miracle is executed. He simply breaks the food. The verb here in the passage is that he just keeps on giving out the food. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. It wasn't a one-time giving. It was an ongoing process. It probably took 
a long time, maybe hours. Jesus is handing the disciples line up. And they probably use some of those baskets to distribute the food, giving a basket perhaps to a group. And then coming back and Jesus still has food to pass out. What was happening? We don't know what was happening in front of him, but from his hands came food for thousands of people. The focus is on Jesus. This amazing miracle. Jesus can provide. Jesus has power. Lots of things to learn. But before we move on to the intended lessons, let's comment on the leftovers. Verse 17, and they all ate and were satisfied. Now, many of you know I I raised a pretty sizable family, and as the kids grew, sometimes I wouldn't get my, my, the last bratwurst. It might disappear. One of those teenagers grabbed it up. In a big group, you don't always get all the food you might want. In this group, everybody had enough food. And how do we know that? Because there was so much left over. There were baskets full left over. I kind of think in terms of a laundry basket. We have no idea how big this basket is. It was some woven basket. And you know, out of 5,000 people, 12 baskets may not seem like a lot, but it was a lot. And consistent with other miracles in the Bible, whether it was Elijah or Elisha, you remember the widow who was provided for? Don't waste what's left over. So it's collected and saved and perhaps given to others later. But what's the significance of the leftovers? I think there are a couple of points of significance. I know it was significant for those apostles, those disciples. You know, they're waving. How can we feed them? We only have a couple of fish and a couple of loaves. They may have been waving them. Now they're holding heavy baskets of leftovers. For their memory, as uh, Phil Riken says, the weight of those baskets would help the disciples remember what Jesus had provided. It wasn't hearsay, it was in their own hands. But I think the leftovers are also evidence for the skeptics. You see, the most uh, liberal Bible commentators that don't like supernatural stuff, and they, they try to explain away all the miracles... Uh, you, you know, they, they say the Israelites crossed the Red Sea because it was a drought. And they just walked across. And they try to explain away the miracles. You know what they do with this story. And it's even found its way into some Sunday school curriculum. So always check. Well, when this little boy shared and Jesus made a fuss over the little boy, everybody who had been hiding their own food, they brought it out and they all started to share Okay, that doesn't explain the ample bounty left over. If everybody just brought travel portions for themselves, and I'm sure some forgot, where does the bounty come from? And it certainly doesn't acknowledge the the straightforward presentation of the text that Jesus handed out the food. Are the scriptures telling the truth or not? I think it's harder to... To disbelieve the supernatural. The leftovers are significant. 
J.C. Ryle said, on no other occasion did our Lord so clearly manifest his divine creative power before so many. These people may not have fully understood what had happened, but they knew that they connect Jesus with a free meal and and this great crowd. How did he do this? It raised the question once again, who is this? And when they couldn't find any other reason, it was miraculous. God had fed people in a wilderness place before. In the Old Testament, as the slaves who had left Egypt wandered through the, Old Test- through the wilderness, you can read about in Exodus, God fed them with bread in the wilderness, manna from heaven, God's provision every day for 40 years. Our God is able, say the scriptures, to prepare a banquet in the wilderness, to set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. This is what God can do. This is what Jesus did do. So what are the lessons here? What are we to take away? There are many, many lessons. I'm trying to limit myself and maybe combine a few. You see, these, these miracles, these moments aren't just a, a big flash like a 4th of July firework. Oh, there's the big one. No, the miracles are instructive As one has said, miracles are acted parables with their own message about the nature of God's kingly rule over the world. This miracle has much to teach. And I think the very fact that this miracle happens, and it happens in this context with Jesus patiently serving the needs of the crowd. Remember, he was teaching and healing, and then he feeds them all. It shows us the compassion of the Lord. The Lord Jesus graciously giving himself to his own disciples and to the larger community and to whoever seeks him. We mentioned briefly the compassion of the Lord earlier. But it is explicit in the summary we find in many places in the Gospels. For instance, in Matthew 9, a summary of Jesus' ministry throughout Galilee Included this in Matthew 9 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The great compassionate heart of Jesus. It should likely be one of the very first things you think of when you think of Jesus. His compassion. He takes time with the disciples and with the multitude. Further lessons here are are obvious. The power of the Lord. The power and sufficiency of the Lord. Remember the disciples had a crisis and they were unable to meet the need. So they thought. And there's speculation if you read some of the scholarly commentaries. Even the conservative scholarly commentaries saying when Jesus said you feed them was he expecting them To do what he himself did. We'll never know. They didn't do it. But isn't it conceivable? I can see why they pursue this line of inquiry in their commentaries. That Jesus was calling them to say. Hey you've been given power and authority. You can pray. You can ask of me. 
He was certainly trying to provoke their faith, but he was wanting to help their weakened faith, their inability to see beyond the menu of what was in their hands by revealing his power. What an encouragement. If this was the end of the internship of those apostles, if they had come and brought their report and they're doing this uh, recap of, of what they've learned, isn't this the great grand lesson that don't think too small of the kingdom of God? There are abilities beyond what you're aware of. This is how Phil Riken puts it. The feeding of the 5,000 reminds us not to forget that God is not limited by our inadequacies. Rather, our very limitations can display the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ whenever he does what we are unable to do. His power is made perfect in weakness, as we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. His power and sufficiency. This is what Paul learned. The apostle Paul, who used to be Saul of Tarsus, he encountered Jesus. He had his own special internship for a few years with the risen Lord, and then he went out and did ministry, and he understood that he was a clay vessel, and the power was of God within him. These apostles were still learning that. We could go on on this point. Why was there need for Jesus to exercise his power? Because of our inability. So we should be learning our inability. Don't be afraid of it. Recognize it. But then take our inability and turn to Christ's ability. And that brings up the the role of prayer, does it not? Father, help. Lord, what can we do? Sometimes the doctors come and tell you there's, there's not much that can be done. The Christian knows that men of science and men and women of medicine uh, have experience and usually speak the truth. But we know just a little bit more. That if it be our Father's will, something could happen. In all my years of ministry, I've really only seen one person turn from death's doorstep, and he's alive today. Oh, I could describe it. It was genuinely death's doorstep. But I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of Christians nearing death's doorstep and praying. God can act, but he doesn't always do what we want. Can't fully explain that. I didn't mean to wander into that this morning, but God has power and ability, but he also has wisdom and purposes beyond our understanding sometimes. But that should never stop us from at least asking, from making our, our desires known to the Lord in seeking his help. Jesus never rebuffs anyone who asks with, a, with, with God's will and God's glory in our heart and mind. There's power there that we should understand. 
A third lesson, I think, is, is also being taught here. This miracle, this particular grand-scale miracle is chosen by Jesus, by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to display the provision of salvation in Christ. This will connect with thoughts and it will cause the minds of men then and now to think of the greater picture that is portrayed here. It wasn't just a meal for weary travelers in the middle of nowhere to get them to tomorrow. There's something else being declared here as Jesus stood before this multitude. It it reminded those present of that wilderness provision of God. When God brought his people to himself, they came out to the wilderness to worship God and there was no food. And God supplied manna for them, bread from heaven. And at this event, Jesus is laying the groundwork to make that known. In John's gospel, it's made crystal clear. If you have your Bibles, let's just quickly look at John chapter 6 for a couple of verses that will teach us this. John chapter 6. I'll start in verse 31. The feeding of the 5,000 is told in John 6. And Jesus goes on to say these things. And perhaps this is part of the sermon he gave that Luke didn't mention. Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. That is the heavenly bread. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Salvation is being pictured in this miracle, available to multitudes. Later on in the chapter, verses 48 and following, Jesus said again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Profound picture. Not just a big miracle, but a message of a miracle. This is salvation. This is God's intended message for then and for now. He provides life through the Lord Jesus Christ. In closing, let me make just a couple of exhortations. I normally do three, but let's just do two. One's a do and one's a don't. Which one do we want to do first? I'll let you pick. The don't first. Okay, thank you. That's what I wanted to do first. And we're so familiar with this miracle, but we really need to relearn both these lessons. Number one, don't overlook the Lord Jesus Christ. He is available to us. He doesn't, he's, and I'm not just saying he's DoorDash when you're hungry. That's not what this is teaching us, is it? 
It is saying Jesus is sufficient. If you need to order, if you need to ask, ask by faith, not just by sight. But know that Jesus commands the wind and the waves. Jesus is the Lord God of the universe who brings forth bread from out of the earth by the power of his hands. Don't overlook the Lord Jesus. We can't say it enough. Jesus and his power, Jesus and his compassion, Jesus and his sufficiency. You know what? If you, if you have to flee to Jesus all the time, you might say, oh, that makes me look weak. Well, surprise, surprise. We are weak. We are uncertain. Life can be hard. We need Jesus. Don't overlook him. This story shows God's provision for us is sure. And it's abundant despite our lack of faith and understanding. Isn't that what it shows? Jesus was patient and gracious with these disciples who were just waving their biscuits and their sardines. Don't overlook Jesus. To overlook him is is fairly serious. Phil Riken, who used to be the preacher in Philadelphia, now he's at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, made this comment that's strong. He said the trouble with the disciples was that they were looking at things from a merely human perspective. They were acting like men without a God. Thinking only in terms of what they had on hand and what they had the ability to provide with their own resources. Not considering the power and the providence of their God. They were behaving as men without a God. How do you behave? that's the dividing line, isn't it? We know and believe God or we really don't. Don't overlook the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's a do, the positive. Do offer the Lord your meager resources, your very self. The little boy isn't mentioned in Luke's account. It's in one of the other four Gospels. The little boy who comes forward. And he's often set up as a model. We should all bring our our resources. Yeah, we should. And the disciples should offer their service. They, They try. They're floundering. Jesus is very patient. But look what Jesus does with the little that is offered. It's a beautiful picture. Perhaps in a different context, this story might help. Uh. In 2003, a a pretty cool book came out called Jesus in Beijing by David Aikman. And in it, he mentions one of the first missionaries to China, Robert Morrison. And this is where the story comes from. Robert Morrison was sent to China in 1805 by the London Missionary Society. He had to travel there, but because of the Napoleonic Wars, there wasn't a lot of traffic, uh, shipping traffic. So he had to go on a ship of the East India Company. And he's on this ship, and the owner of the ship uh, heard about Mr. Morrison's plans to evangelize China. And they knew it was a really big place. Uh, So the owner of the ship uh, said, Mr. Morrison, do you really expect 
that you alone will make an impression upon the idolatry of the great Chinese empire? No, sir, Mr. Morrison quickly replied, I expect that God will. And the Lord did. There are believers in China who can trace themselves back to the work of Robert Morrison. Praise God. Over 200 years of growth of Christianity. What did he do? He offered what he could to the service of the Lord with an eye on the power and sufficiency of Jesus. Here we have a lesson for us. Bring who you are and what you are and put yourself in the hands of Jesus. Lord, here I am. Use me. Send me. I can't do much. Don't make me preach up front. Offer what you have, even your meager resources. God's pretty good at making use of small things. In the Old Testament, that great big enemy Goliath, God seemed to use five smooth stones. Actually didn't need them all. From someone described as a little shepherd boy, no armor, mocked for stepping forward. David takes that stone, puts it in his sling, brings down the giant. It was God's help. God is still sending disciples into the world. He sent the 12, he trained them, he taught them, he has also taught us, and he has commissioned us to be his people and to serve in the kingdom and to tell others the good news. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the miracles of Jesus, but even more so, we thank you for the words of Jesus that explain the miracles, how he really wants people to know he is the bread of life. He is sufficient for our salvation. He has power to conquer our sin and to take our place under the wrath of God. We thank you for this great story about the ongoing provision of Jesus for his people, always ample and compassionate. Father, may we be like men and women who know you are our God. May we so live vibrantly, boldly, faithfully with your help to see your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.